0: Today is April, it's May the 10th, 2019. You know why I said it was April by accident? Because it's friggin' 48 degrees when I woke up this morning. What the hell is going on? 48 degrees in May. May the 10th, North Central Texas. That just ain't normal. It must be some of that global warming. Oh Wait a minute. Anyway, what do we got going on? Well, it is Friday, 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 so we've got the Expert Council Q&A show for you for this week. I got Darby Simpson today talking about running sheep and chickens together. I got Gary Collins talking about why there's so much of an inflammatory response and weight gain problem in the U.S. and other Western country food supply, even when people eat about the same amount of food and same foods. This was spurred by a uh, a comment in the blog that's been made a couple different times a couple different ways by Nick in Mongolia, who's a long-time listener of the show uh, ended up moving to Mongolia for a business opportunity, but now travels routinely back to the United States. Nicole Sauce is going to talk about getting started as a new marketer. Like you decided you want to go into business, well, you can set up a store online, but then, or even offline, but then it's kind of like it's in the middle of a desert you got to build roads to it. And that's what marketing is, getting people to come to you. And Nicole will talk about how to get started doing that. Last week, old Doc Bones got out of his convalescent bed, wiped the dribble off his chin long enough to tell us about Chagas disease and the deadly kissing bug and how it's not really the big deal they made it out to be in these stories online, but it is a concern. Well, i got Doc Kelly doing some follow-up on that, on how it would affect possibly dogs and cats. Then we got John Pugliano, who is the man himself on investing, handling five somewhat similar questions on investing 401Ks and IRAs, all in one shot, five in one from John, and he met his time limit with time to spare because he's just that good. Um, Officer Steve Wise is one of our newer council members, been with us a while now, not getting a ton of questions for him. Uh, He saw circulating around a video, by a cat named Larkin Rose. He's an anarchist that I don't always see eye to eye with, I'll tell you that. And Larkin, a long time ago, uh, wrote an article called When's It Okay to Shoot a Cop? Well, he made that that article into a video recently, and that's been getting a lot of traction. And Officer Steve Wise has a response to it. I'll tell you why I think both sides have a point here when I respond to Steve's response and tell you about some other things going on here. And why I think Larkin is basically an asshole who does asshole things for asshole reasons because he wants the exact kind of response he gets, and then he acts surprised when he gets them. Uh, while I still think that, that Larkin is a good voice for anarchism if you're the in the initiated, and you're already an anarchist and you actually understand what he's saying, uh, I'll tell you why I think rhetoric like Larkin's is the worst thing for the anarchist movement. And I know some of you disagree. That's okay. We can agree to disagree. Uh, next up, Steve Harris has an update for us on what's going on and continuing to go on with the battery issues at Amazon and some information about counterfeit batteries, especially with like CR123s, 18650s, etc. Then I got a question I'm going to take on, how to make your hobbies pay for themselves. And I'm going to add to it, and the, the question was pretty cut and dry. How do you make your hobbies pay for themselves? I'm going to add to that without ruining them without ruining them there's a big difference between some hobby side hustle income that the goal is i want all the electricity for instance and food that i feed my fish in my fish tanks to break even for me the, from that and actually running a business even a side hustle business where you know i want to make 10 grand a year extra that that's a side hustle business your hobbies like you can turn them into businesses i'm all about following your passion but if, if you really want it to stay a hobby, then you got to take some time to think about what you're doing when it comes to making a hobby pay for itself. We'll get to all of that and more in just a minute. I want to start out with our new segment. Uh, every week on Friday, I want to uh, feature a YouTube channel of the week for you guys uh, to go check out. And this one came in from a member of the audience suggesting it. And if you want to suggest a channel of the week, you know what to do. Email me, Jack com. Make sure TSPC is in the subject line and tell me, you know, the name of the channel and some information about it if you want to. And I'll throw it in a folder and we'll see if it eventually gets on the air. Today's channel of the week is the Living Traditions Homestead channel. What's it all about? Well, you know, I love it when I'm doing this and the channel has like a short introductory video where they explain it in their words so I don't have to. So let me just play their introductory video for you.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to the homestead. My name is Kevin and this is Sarah with Living Traditions Homestead. And we sure are glad that you found our channel. You know, we have our YouTube channel to help encourage uh, new homesteaders or those of you who are dreaming about someday being homesteaders. uh, So that we can teach you and encourage you to uh, have the skills and the knowledge to live a self-sustainable homesteading lifestyle.
2: Kevin and I and our family used to live in the Phoenix, Arizona area. Uh, Kevin and I both had high-pressure corporate jobs and we were miserable. In uh, 2012, we decided to become homesteaders. We sold our big house and we bought a small urban farm uh, where we began to learn self-sufficiency skills and we worked hard to become debt free.
1: Now we're living in the Missouri Ozarks where we're full-time homesteaders and we answer to nobody but ourselves. Uh, We are here to uh, encourage other people to live the same homesteading lifestyle and that's why we started this YouTube channel. We wanna pass on uh, the knowledge and the skills that we've acquired over the years. On our channel, uh, you will see videos about gardening, raping animals for food, canning. Self-sufficiency, frugal living, and just all around how to live a simpler, slower lifestyle. So we hope you guys will uh, hit the subscribe button below so that you get notified of all the new videos that we put out. Uh, if this is your first time here, uh, check out the playlist titled New to Living Traditions Homestead, Start Here. We sure are glad that you guys are here. Again, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And until next time, God bless. God bless.
0: It's a very well-done channel. Um, it's got some decent production value and all in the videos, but it's, it's a, a, kind of a lot like some of the stuff I do. Uh, they're not trying to be professional video producers. They're just sharing what they're doing, and it's working for them. They have about 155,000 subscribers. I became a subscriber when I uh, was told about them. I think they have some cool videos. They share my affinity for ducks. And you, see, you know, I like that. Um, and they're putting out about three to four videos a week on average, is what it looks like. So that's cool. They're they're, they're maintaining and continuing to put new content out regularly on their channel. Those of you that want to build a content based business online, no matter what the niche is, uh, that's a good that's a good way to go. You put that high frequency of content out. That's how to get that done. With that, let's go ahead and uh, get into our first question for an expert council member. This one for Darby Simpson. I'm running sheep and chickens together. Darby, what's up, man?
3: Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson of Grass Fed Life calling in once again to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, we've got a question from Steve all the way down in Texas about sheep. And Steve is wanting to know if it would be beneficial to tractor chickens following sheep, just like you might do with chickens following cattle, like we do here on our farm. Uh, details are that he recently bought a sheep tractor, which he sent in a nice video of on YouTube, pretty snazzy looking piece of equipment, and he's wanting to know, you know, should he uh, buy or build another, uh, tractor that's designed for the chickens to follow the sheep, um, he's thinking, you know, he'd move them every time the sheep get moved, and, it, you know, they'd be double duty in terms of being an egg-laying flock and hopefully as a way of lightening the worm larvae load on the pastures. And he's wanting some suggestions and ideas about what our thoughts are on this. And um, I got to tell you, Steve, yes, I think that this is very important, uh, particularly with sheep. Uh, they are very, very prone to parasites. Um, we don't run sheep on our farm. I I do have a little bit of experience with sheep and, you know, we had a lot of health problems with them. Um, and we've got a lot of irons in the fire and those, those two things coupled together are the reasons we don't run sheep on our farm, but I think it's a really good idea to run birds behind them. Now, one thing I want to mention here, I know this is, you know, true of, of, cattle i'm not exactly sure about sheep so you need to do a little bit of research but with cattle you know the biggest reason you run the laying hens behind them is to pick out the fly larvae uh that are in the cow pies and those need to be big enough that the chickens can see them but not so big enough that they've hatched and turned into a fly that that is pestering the cow so the sweet spot there is to make sure that your chickens are about three to four days behind the cows, so they hit that larvae at the precise moment when they can see it and eat it before it uh, becomes airborne. Uh, so do some research about you know how many days behind the sheep you would want to run your chickens. Um, I would suggest putting them in a tractor. Yes, I don't know how many sheep tractors you're going to have if it's just one based on the size of the one I saw in the video uh, you're probably not going to want a chicken tractor that exact same size what I would tell you to do is to build a, a, a tractor uh, that's easily portable um, that you yes can move every day or every couple of days if you want and let the birds out of it use netting use a little bit of netting so that they can get a big enough area that they could cover uh, en- enough ground from your sheep. The other thing I want to mention is that that sheep tractor is pretty small. Uh, very snazzy piece of equipment, yes. Very small, limited grazing area. Um, based on the number of sheep I saw in that video, I mean you'd have to move that daggone thing two or three times a day at least uh, to keep the sheep from eating the uh, <laughs> the grass plants down to the nubbins. So keep that in mind. Uh, stocking density. Is, is very important. You may have to move that multiple times per day, which is fine. But going back to our birds, we're going to ma- want to make sure we've got enough netting that they can, you know, uh, basically range over uh, two or three or, or four movements, or however many times you move this thing per day uh, with, with the netting. So that's why I think that's another reason you don't want to have a, a, a tractor where the birds are locked into it. You want to let them out and, and put them in netting netting's a lot more work but really that's the only way to accomplish what you're talking about and you know that's the best practice that we have whether we're talking about following you know sheep or or cattle or whatever any kind of ruminants with birds we want to make sure that they can cover the entire area where those manure patties are at and then of course they can they can spread those manure patties around for us and uh, spread them out over the pasture and enrich our pastures better so those are some of my thoughts uh, the other thing I want to mention again about this piece of equipment, again, I really like it, I'm kind of enamored by it. I'm sure it works wonderful on really flat ground. I don't know what your ground is like or where you're planning on running your sheep, um, but that thing would not do well on rough terrain, most likely, or on uh, very steep slopes. That's something to keep in mind. Hopefully those pneumatic tires have got brakes on them so that if you are on a little bit of a slope, you can hit the brake so it doesn't go flying down the hill on you. That's also something to think about when you're moving it. Uh, making sure that, you know, you're hopefully, you know, pushing it slightly uphill or or whatever so it doesn't take off on you. But, um, just be careful where you place that. And again, think about how many times per day you're going to need to move it based on your stocking density. I really can't get into the, uh, you know, the the idiosyncrasies of rotational grazing here in this podcast. Uh, that's why we have the Grassfed Life podcast and all the other resources that we offer at Grass-Fed Life. Um, but the thing I can tell you is, you don't want to overgraze. Overgrazing is the worst thing you can do for your pasture. Simply the absolute worst possible thing that you can do. So, those are my thoughts, Steve. I hope you find this helpful. Uh, if you're interested in learning more uh, from me from Grassfed Life, check out grassfedlife.co. There are free podcasts out there. There are some other free resources out there, and we've got some really inexpensive paid resources like our Grassfed Life Insider, uh, which costs you a whopping five dollars a month, or only forty nine bucks a year. And we send out new content every week. Might be a uh, private uh, Insider podcast might be a private uh, screencast video where I walk through something with you. Uh, might be a screencast from a guest instructor, like my good friend Kelly down in Kentucky, who just shared how he, in the last two years, has generated over $140,000 in state and federal grants for his farm. Um, or it, it might be, uh, you know, our our own internal Q&A session where we answer questions directly from our audience. So if you're interested in learning more from us, check that out. We've got other resources out there as well. But uh, a lot of people find that really helpful, especially as they're just beginning their farming journey. And we've got over 30 hours of content in in that insider. So there's a lot to learn from out there, including tips on rotational grazing. Uh, As always, guys, thanks for sending the questions in. I appreciate it. Keep them coming. Get out there, make a difference in Regen Ag, and uh, everyone, as always, have a wonderful weekend. Take care.
0: All right, so next up I have this question for Gary, and yeah, I want to kind of explain uh, the genesis of this. Again, Nick of Mongolia is how he goes by on the blog, and he was a guy, actually, when he ended up moving to Mongolia, he called in and asked about, you know, thoughts about whether or not it was worth doing that. So he's been with us a long time. And a couple different times he's made comments on the blog that basically say, hey, what we notice is we come back to the United States to visit with friends and family. We eat pretty much the same diet. And all of a sudden we're having health problems, inflammation. We put weight on. Go back to Mongolia and eat basically the same diet. The inflammation goes away. The weight gain that we put on during our visit goes away. And our issues go away. And Gary, you know, was, was not ever sent this as a question. Just being a guy that's actually involved in our community, like a good expert council member should be, that's aware and paying attention, saw this and said, you know, I got some thoughts on this. So, Gary, go ahead and uh, tell us what you think about this.
4: Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the com and the greatest book series in the world, according to Gary. The Simple Life book series and the Going and Living Off the Grid book series. Make sure to go check those out. They are very helpful in life simplification. So today, oh boy, chronic inflammation from the American diet and the culprits. Nick goes over quite a few, and uh, he hits a uh, you know between grain grain-fed factory farm meat, higher gluten wheat, hidden added sugar, glyphosate, pesticides. It's yeah. Those are all the biggies in the American foods. And he talks about when him and his family come here to visit from overseas, they notice they gain quite a bit of weight and suffer from uh, inflammation, and they feel better soon as they get back. Well, we're uh, welcome to the Western diet. It has killed very many people prematurely and made them very ill. Besides the main ones, which I always say, you know, sugar is probably the biggest. We put sugar in everything in this country to include our water. Um probably the one he's missing I would say are the cooking oils that they're they're eating their food if they're eating out a lot. That's the hard part for, for me in restaurants is even the vegetables unless they're steamed it's always the oils that are going to get me cuz a lot of the oils that they use are very very cheap primarily canola and saff- safflower oil are they they are low heat to get to rancidity, and like I said, they usually are on the shelf, rancid already, which means they've been oxidized, and we've discussed that. You know, the more oxidation in your body, the higher the inflammation. So what I guess you guys are experiencing is a large part of that. And then, of course, obviously the CAFO uh, animal products, you know, the confined animal feeding operations, unhealthy animal, unhealthy meat, unhealthy human. I mean, that's about as simple as I can make it. But for me, what I usually do, and see what makes it tricky, even if you're going to order a steak and steamed vegetables, the steamed vegetables are usually, you know, if they're steamed, just straight up steamed, like I said, highly, most of the time I find them, they put some oil in there. Well, they'll cook, they'll throw down some oil on the grill for the, the steak not to stick. So you end up with a canola oil steak sometimes, um... Uh, usually the best is if you can get grilled chicken. Uh, some, most of the time you can avoid the oils in there, but sometimes they'll dip them too. I, I swear to God they use all these oils, like it's... You know, like it has to be on everything. So that's what I'd watch out for. And that's where you can get the weight gain, too, is that chronic instant inflammation is going to cause water retention. And that's why you probably feel bloated. You're suffering from hypertension, you know, swollen. Your face is puffy. Your eyes are puffy. You just don't feel right. So, yeah, I hope that helps everyone. And hopefully even people who live here who, when you go travel like me, eating out can be really, really tricky. Um, Another tip is to go I instantly, I go grocery shopping, I go find the natural healthy store, healthiest store I can find, and store up on at least some snacks and some stuff to get me by to where maybe I only have to eat one meal out a day. Again, Gary Gary Collins, I'm an MSB member, The Simple Life Now is on there, get 10% off your first order with free shipping, or not first order, I did it again, for all orders for members. MSB members, all right, thanks a lot guys.
0: You know, I'm not so sure on, like, a steak. Uh, The the trace amount of oil that might be on a grill, and I've watched most places that cook a decent steak, they don't really do a lot of oil. But I'll tell you what, on vegetables and stuff like that, like Gary saying, unless they're steamed, generally, yeah, there's a lot of cooking oil involved. And a lot of things that we eat that you wouldn't even think of oils being in, Uh, In restaurants, there are oils in them, and those rancidity of oil, I think, is definitely one of the things. I think the biggest thing that he touched on that I completely agree with is our meat supply coming largely from CAFOs. And if you're eating an animal, and specifically, you know, what would normally be the most healthy component of that animal is the animal's fat. If you have a a cow eating grass the fat of that cow is one of the most nutritious substances that a human being can consume. If it is consuming massive amounts of corn and doing so in unhealthy conditions, it's going to have an inflammation response. And the things that cause the inflammation response, toxins, get stored heavily in the human body and in many animal bodies, most animal bodies, in fat resort nerves. Uh, this is one of the reasons when you go on a diet and you start losing weight, you feel like dog shit. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. Especially if you go on a diet, you lose weight, and you stop consuming toxins. All of a sudden, you, you're, you're, you're cleaning out, but at the same time you're cleaning out all of the toxins you've stored up in your fat. As you burn that fat, you're processing it through your body. And so I think that's one of the chief issues there. But I think it is, like Gary's talking about, a bunch of different moving parts there, and it's a totality of the way food is uh, prepared in our, our, our situation, and the additional crap that doesn't need to be there. You know, if you are eating a steak fried in canola oil, there is no reason for that steak to be fried in freaking canola oil. It's just not necessary. There's no reason for it at all. None. But yet we'll do it, uh, I guess. And uh, with that, let's go take another one. i got here uh, Nicole Sauce, who instead of her absolute debauchery of what she pulled last week, has given us something useful uh, in advice in getting started as a new marketer.
2: Hey, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a marketing question from Jared in South Carolina. Nicole, do you have any good resources to suggest to someone who wants to learn about marketing? Jared, yes, I do. However, then I read the rest of your question. I'm currently trying to figure out what I want to do for my own small business. I realize that whatever this business ends up being, marketing is going to play a major key in its success. I have no sales or marketing background. Any suggestions you have would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Okay, so I've got lots of great resources for marketing, but when you said you've never done marketing or sales and you're not quite sure what you're starting, I'm wondering why you're worried about it. Because here's what I would do in your shoes. I would find a way to start doing sales and marketing, especially if you're in a position in your life where you can change jobs from what you have now to something else. It's time to start looking for that sales job or to do the digital marketing for somebody. That is about the best thing you can do to learn how to do this right. And if you can do it while earning money, (laughs) then that's awesome. So think about your job. If you're looking at building a business someday and you don't know what it is yet, you haven't found what that thing's going to be, start building the skills you're going to need for that. And I think the best way to do marketing and sales is experience. But at the same time, yes, there are some resources I recommend. If you're just getting started with the concepts I mean, you know, aside from going to Google and typing marketing into the bar, which will get you lots of resources, the American Marketing Association has a lot of articles about marketing that you can read. There's a book by Chip and Dan Heath called Made to Stick that I prefer to consume for, via audio. It's also quite good at getting your brain trained towards thinking that way. And ah, God, really what you need to do is... Go start selling stuff and you will start learning it and you will start seeing areas of the discipline that you can read about because marketing is a huge field, right? There's digital marketing, there's email marketing, there's all these different tools that you can use. At the end of the day, what is marketing? You're telling your brand story in a way that compels the people you want to reach, your target, to buy what you have to sell. So I guess my other thing is that sales and marketing Maybe separate disciplines, but those two things have to work so closely together that, in fact, I think marketing is the servant of sales, and sales is what drives your business i 'm glad you 're thinking about that now, so go do it, and remember this is a journey right so i I hear like you almost feel pressure in your in your words about starting your business. <sighs> And I understand because it's great working for yourself, but it's also scary as crap. So do spend some time figuring out as you go through this, are you ready to be the person who's responsible for everything? I hope this helps you get started towards learning some new skills as you go on your adventure. Thank you so much for the question, guys. If you want to know more about me, you can do that over at my website, livingfreeintennessee.com. There's a podcast and links to all my other little adventures Or maybe the better word is Ventures. Jack, thanks for everything you do. Guys, go out. Make it a great week.
0: Okay, and next up, as I said, last week we had Old Man Bones come on. And uh, if anybody ever thinks I'm picking on him too much with the old man thing, he started it. He, he's referred to himself that way for as long as I've known him. And, and just so y'all that maybe are new to the show, uh, Dorothy and I are very, very close personal friends with uh, Bones and Amy. We, uh, we always spend some of our time when we vacation, especially in Florida, with them. So it's, it's just good fun between friends. Anyway, I had old man Bones wipe the dribble off his mouth and tell us all about Chagas disease. I also asked our uh, veterinary expert council member, Dr. Kelly, to... Uh, fill us in on the risks if any it poses fo- poses to our pets doc kelly would we'll say you
5: hi jack and all tsp listeners this is dr kelly here to answer all your furry pet questions today's question is from jack on the risks of chagas disease in animals chagas disease does pose a threat in animals especially dogs but the question is how big of a threat is it really as usual it depends It's possible for cats to contract this parasite too, but due to limited data points in the U.S., not as much is known about the disease progression in this species or any treatment options, so I'm mainly going to be speaking in reference to dogs. There have also been reports of infections in horses, cattle, goats, and other livestock, but very little research in this area, so it's a big unknown. Now, while the kissing bug that carries the disease has been found farther up north, you do see more of it in the southern U.S., the states with the highest zero prevalence rate for dogs, which is in blood tests for them, are Texas with estimates of 2.6% to 8.8% of dogs potentially being infected. Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Georgia also rank really high. Dogs are actually used as sentinel animals for this disease since they're more likely to have exposure to it and serve basically as the canary in the coal mine. Now dogs acquire the disease in multiple ways. They can get it from a bite that the bug defecates in, just like people. They can eat a kissing bug because dogs eat weird things, or they can eat infected prey such as raccoons, skunks, opossums, armadillos, along with some kinds of rodents. In fact, one study showed that out of a sampling of raccoons in central Texas, 70% were infected with the parasite. Congenital transmission in utero is also possible. And because of this, if a breeding female tests positive for chagas, Even if she is not symptomatic, it's worth considering removing her from the gene pool. Now, dogs that are spending the night outdoors or in a semi-outdoor kennel type of situation are at a higher risk to acquire Chagas disease because they're out where the bugs are. And this puts dogs like hunting dogs and livestock guardians into a higher risk group just due to lifestyle. Just like in people, not all infected dogs become severely ill. Younger dogs, especially puppies, appear to have a worse prognosis if they acquire Chagas. Unfortunately, there isn't an early detection for this disease and most dogs get diagnosed after presenting for lethargy and typically are already showing signs of heart failure. This also presents a problem for determining the actual incidence of the disease as some owners will elect to not treat the heart failure and instead choose euthanasia instead of these advanced workups, including Chagas diagnostics. So you don't always know if you've seen a Chagas patient at your hospital, you just know you saw a heart failure patient. Treating Chagas in animals is mainly left to treating symptoms. Treatment is most effective when given in the early acute stages, which is rarely diagnosed in the dogs. The benznidazole is the drug of choice, just like in people. However, it has a success rate of less than 40% when used in the chronic phase. Up until a few years ago, this drug was not even available to veterinarians in the US, but I believe now it can be acquired for use in pets. There've been some other protocols with different drugs trying to come up with a better cure rate, but it's all still, early stages of that and prevention is just as doc bones mentioned last week, keeping brush piles cleared since wildlife living in them serve as blood meals for the kissing bug, reducing lighting at night around homes and kennels since it acts as a beacon for the bugs and sealing around windows, doors, and vents. Delta methrin-infused collars have been shown to reduce feeding of the kissing bug, and in one study, the products Provecto and Nexgard, which are flea and tick preventions, did kill the bugs. However, it was over a period of time, so it may keep the populations reduced, which helps decrease infection rate, but it may not always prevent a feeding. Like I mentioned before, the highest risk are the dogs spending the nights outside. So if you have a hunting dog that has been at a kennel where there have been heart failure cases or young dogs having heart failure or just any odd unexplained sudden deaths, especially of younger dogs, that's a possible red flag to have your dog tested just in case. In endemic areas, you might also consider testing females prior to breeding. Now serum titers are the gold standard for diagnosis and they become positive 21 days post-infection. Different vaccines are also being studied currently to try and find a better means of prevention. As this is an emerging disease here, we'll learn more about the diagnosis and treatment as more cases pop up. So if you happen to find out your dog or someone else's dog is positive for the disease and they don't really travel off property, I would definitely take precaution in sealing the house on that location better as it means infected kissing bugs are at that location. And while you don't catch it directly from your dog just in normal activities, I would take precaution if you have an infected dog and you have to handle their blood for some reason, like they get a cut. So overall, your risk for your average suburban indoor dog is lower. You know, but dogs spending more time outside, especially at night in more rural settings in endemic areas, it's definitely something to be aware of and take what precautions you can. So for more information on kissing bugs and Chagas disease, you can visit the website from Texas A&M University at kissingbug.tamu.edu. And if you find a bug you suspect is a kissing bug, you can even send them pictures or send in the bug itself uh, for testing to see if it carries the parasite. And all that information is on that website. So remember everyone, I may be a veterinarian, but I'm not your veterinarian. And my advice is just intended to give you a ballpark view of what your vet may recommend. I hope everyone has a great weekend. Thanks, Jack.
0: All right, next up, I have John Pugliano knocking out not one, not two, not three, not four, but five questions in one shot, all around investing, IRAs, and 401ks. John, take it away.
6: Hey, TSP listeners. I've got about five questions on retirement savings and 401k plans, and so I'm going to try and merge all those together during this segment. So here we go. Matt wants to know, can he contribute to both his Roth 401k, and a personal Roth retirement? And the simple answer is yes. As long as you individually meet the requirements to contribute to either one, as far as I know, there's no limitations that would prevent you from maxing out the contributions to each one individually. And when it comes to retirement savings, you'll hear me and Jack constantly say, the preference is always a Roth. It's a Roth, Roth, Roth. The reason for that is, And there are many, but the main reason is, is that your capital gains in a Roth are tax-free instead of tax-deferred. Over the long run, that makes a huge difference, and I personally think it outweighs any negatives against the Roth. Now, Chris is investing in his 401k plan at work. He's wondering the age-old question of what should he do if the economy goes sour, and he mentions that would it make sense to get into a real estate portfolio, and he specifically mentions the ticker symbol DFREX. Well, Chris, let me ask you this. If the economy is going to go bad and stocks are going to go down, why would you think that real estate prices were going to do any better? Generally, if there's a recession, all asset classes perform poorly, at least in the initial stages. Sometimes that's not true of bonds, but it really depends on the direction of interest rates. So here's the bottom line. I would say in almost every case, if the country goes into a recession, the absolute best thing you can do is, The one asset class that seems to always hold its value, okay, it's not going to appreciate, but it will hold its value, is the U.S. dollar. So if you think that there's going to be a downturn in the economy or that the stock market is going to go through some bad times, then one of the easiest things to do is to simply move into a cash-equivalent money market fund or mutual fund or whatever your particular 401k program calls it. But it's generally referred to as a cash-equivalent fund. And specific to the ticker symbol that you gave me on the real estate portfolio, you can easily look that performance up on any financial website. And if you do that, you'll see that in December, when we had a major pullback in the S&P 500 and the S&P 500 was down you know, over 20%, that particular fund was down about 14%. Now, 14% is a whole lot better than 20%, but at the same time, cash equivalent in the U.S. dollar wasn't going to go down at all. And the other side of that is, if you go back to the Great Recession in 2008, that particular fund that you mentioned was down over 72% when the general market was only down about 48%. So no, generally speaking, a real estate fund is not immune from going down during a recession. Remember, cash is king. Now, Gary and his wife, they're a young couple in their 30s. They're in really good financial shape. They have no debt other than their mortgage. They're contributing to their 401k plan at work. They're sitting on about $50,000. They've avoided getting into the market over these past couple years. But they're also not making any money sitting in a savings account. So what should they be doing with this money? Well, Gary, as I previously mentioned, I love Roth IRAs. You didn't mention that you're contributing to one. But each year, you and your wife could be putting $12,000 into a Roth IRA, you know, potentially even if you're contributing to your 401k plan at work. So that means that in less than five years, you could be converting this taxable $50,000 into a tax-free capital gains investment. And since you're in your early 30s, that means for, you know, the next 30, 35 years, that money's going to grow and those capital gains will never, ever, ever be taxed. And remember, with a Roth, if you need to access the principal that you've contributed, you can always pull that out without penalty or fees. And in some cases, even the capital gains that are made can be withdrawn without fees or penalties if it's used for certain purposes like higher education or medical expenses. So, again, you want to check with a professional on that. But I'd be taking this $50,000, and over the next four or five years, I'd be trickling it into Roth IRA accounts for you and your wife. Now, specifically as to what you should invest in, listen, you can never go wrong investing in the United States. We're in a growing, expanding economy, and sure, there are ups and downs. But over long-term history, and I think for the foreseeable future, the United States is still a safe place to invest. So you can start out by putting your money in some type of an index fund like SPY or another large exchange-traded fund or mutual fund that specifically invests and is diversified throughout the United States economy. And by doing that, remember, you're also getting international exposure because about 45% or so of revenues on the S&P 500 comes from operations outside the United States anyways. So if you're just starting out, if you're delving into investments, a United States index fund, I think, is the place to be. Now, Mike has a series of questions, but what I want to focus on from him is a comment that he made about his contributions to his 401k plan at work. He mentions that there are three options. There's a Roth, there's a pre-tax 401k, and there's a post-tax 401k. And he's putting about 5% in each of those. Now, Mike, I don't know why you're doing that. It doesn't seem like you're at the higher income threshold where you'd be maxing out the Roth 401k contribution. So, as I mentioned before, that's where I'd be putting my money the Roth, I think, is the best deal out there. Tax-free over the long term, I think in almost every situation, is better than tax-deferred. Now, know, Mike also is a little bit paranoid about Big Brother seizing his 401k plan. Well, Mike, the best advice I can give you there is stop reading things like Zero Hedge. The bottom line is the Federal Reserve controls the flow of money in the United States, and they don't need to seize your 401k or your other retirement assets. They just manipulate their balance sheet and the interest rates to come up with whatever money they need to finance the government anyways. The United States is not like the European Central Bank that doesn't have a unified fiscal policy among all their member countries. That's why we've seen bank bail-ins and other things like that take place in Europe. But they're not going to happen in the United States because they have other means of stealing our money. Listen, I think if the day ever comes when the government does want to take over retirement assets... It will be done on a voluntary basis. A big crisis will come out. There'll be a big drawdown in the market. And the government will say, hey, we're here to help you. Just convert your plan over voluntarily, and we'll provide you security. That's the way it's going to happen. People are going to volunteer to hand over their assets, just like under Franklin Roosevelt, people voluntarily turn in their gold. Now, Mike also mentions that he has a thrift savings plan through his military service. Well, Mike, just based on some of the questions you've asked, I would say that those five or so funds that are offered in the government thrift savings plan, they're probably going to meet your needs just fine. There's a large cap, a small cap, an international fund, a bond fund. Given the amount of money that you have in there, I would say that those five funds will probably meet your needs. Now, to close out, many people have asked if they're saving enough, and this blends nicely with an article from Barron's that John and Moore Park sent in saying that Americans aren't saving enough for retirement. And so the question is, are you saving enough for retirement? And on a personal level, this is really easy to figure out. Here's what you need to do. Just remember the 4% withdrawal rule. And this has been confirmed by many studies over a long period of time. And that's that the best way to not outlive your savings is to not withdraw any more than 4% from your retirement savings. So, assuming that you're getting at least a 4% rate of return, over time you won't outlive your money. So, take the amount of money that you have saved up for retirement, multiply that by .04, add to that the annual amount that you'll be receiving from Social Security and from any pensions that you may have, and that's going to add up to the amount of yearly income that you're going to have in retirement. Look at that number and ask yourself, can you live off of that? How does that compare to what you're spending now? And sadly enough, that number doesn't even come close to covering most people's living expenses. That's the bottom line. The number's easy to calculate, and you don't even have to use an Excel spreadsheet. Wait, well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions for the expert counsel. This is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth.
0: You know, uh, the next one I've got for you is from Officer Steve Wise, and it is in response to Larkin Rose's video. This is, I think, a case where both sides can disagree and both sides can be right, and I'll try to explain what I mean by that when I come back. Uh, Steve, uh, talk to us about this video about when it's okay to shoot a cop.
7: Hello, Jack and TSB listeners. This is Steve Wise, your retired law enforcement member of the expert council. Remember, I'm not an attorney, and I don't represent and and don't know the laws in all 50 states. Please do your own research and consult an attorney for any legal advice. I haven't received any questions recently, but uh, I did see a video floating around the webs, and I thought it was worth a couple words. The video asked the question, when would it be okay to shoot a cop? (laughs) Well, needless to say, I was taken a bit back by that question. I mean, automatically, response is never. But I wanted to watch the video first to see if there was any points we could learn from. And and even if you disagree with the topic, it doesn't mean you shouldn't at least listen and see if they make any logical points. So where do I start with this one? The video ignores our entire justice system. It puts law enforcement officers as the final arbitrator of any law, which is not true in our society. Uh, the belief in a court system? Uh, whether you believe it's going to follow the laws or not, or if you believe the the court system is unjust or not uh, does not give you the authority to shoot somebody that is in law enforcement uh, there's also a lot of examples in history that involve governments where the dictators or the, you know, the socialists or are communists are running the government, and they become uh, where the government is God. And uh or they're this final sole arbitrator that's when the systems start to break down. We don't have that here in the United States. Our Constitution is only as good as moral people are uh, as or as godly people are it become when it comes to enforcement when we remove that higher power and we we, we say, hey, government is the final arbitrator of all stuff uh, you know that's when we start to break down. our laws are totally inadequate if we don't have uh, the thought that a higher power exists. Since our current laws are still heard in a criminal justice system, then you have rights as a citizen. They have not been removed. When you start going to jail, you don't have a trial. Or that trial is a farce, uh, you don't aren't given a jury, don't have a right to have a competent attorney, then things are different. But we're not there. Uh, We are not in that situation where law enforcement is acting alone, on behalf of a tyrannical government. Do I say Venezuela? Uh, They are acting on what the elected government officials have decided. If you don't like the laws the lawmakers are putting in place, then kick them out of office. Thomas Jefferson actually at one point proposed that uh, no law should last longer than 19 years. The thought that any laws that were not working would automatically expire and the legislature would be forced to reenact them. I know that there's a belief that some election, by some that elections don't matter. Well, that all depends on the candidates and their moral convictions. If you don't want to participate in the national elections, at least focus yourself on the local elections. You know, your school board, your city council. These are the places where you should know the people running for office. These are the places that could directly affect your ability to do things and live your life on a day to day basis. Anyway, the the video leaves a lot of facts out, and I would strongly caution anyone who wishes to resist law enforcement officers saying, hey, this isn't constitutional. You don't have the right to be doing this. Please consider your family first. Would you rather go to court, be judged by a jury of your peers, or would you rather your relatives be carrying you to your funeral? Neither one guarantees your rights, but uh, you'll live in the first choice. The second choice, you won't, and... Um, I think you would rather have that opportunity to have your voice heard in court, present your case. If you win, then you turn around and sue the people for whatever they did to write the laws that ended up putting you in that position. And if you win your lawsuit, then, hey, you're rich. Anyway, this is Steve Wise, and uh, we'll send it back to you, Jack.
0: Okay, so – the, the issue here is this. As I said, I think Larkin Rose is kind of an asshole on purpose. I think he wants to be an asshole. I think he wants to trigger the types of responses that he triggers from the people that object to him. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. I think he thinks he's clever, and I think it works for him with some people. But I don't think it ever works for him with people that aren't either anarchists or so close to the edge of anarchy already they would end up there anyway. I don't think he does... Jack crap to convert people. Um, You know, I've been an anarchist for quite a while. Uh, I've been a libertarian for most of my life. In fact, I was always an anarchist. I just wasn't aware of it. I didn't really understand what the word meant. Like many people that that eventually classify themselves as a voluntarist or anarchist. uh, And yet, he makes me just think, God, you're stupid. Even when I agree with him, I'm thinking, God, you're stupid. So there's some things that Steve said there that if they were true... He would be right, but they're not exactly true. So for instance, what he said is that in this video, Larkin was making claims that you know that we, we, we had tyranny and oppression and we don't. Well, one of the specific things that Larkin mentions in this video is a situation happened, I believe it was Illinois, it was Illinois or Indiana, where officers forcibly entered a man's home illegally. No probable cause. No search warrant, okay, and the court said the court said it was illegal this isn't the the the, the, the individual said it was legal the court said you 're absolutely right. this is an illegal forced entry by law enforcement. They had no warrant, they had no probable cause. Both sides knew it, and they did it anyway, but no you can 't resist now i don 't think you should shoot a police officer in that situation if that 's the totality of the situation. But you're you're, you're getting close because here's my thing. Let's say I'm sitting at home at night and police conducting no-knock raid on my home kick the door and charge through the door. I don't know they're police officers. I just have people breaking in my house. Is it okay to shoot them? I may not want to. It may not be the best end result, but you can see where I would. Because if somebody comes kicking my door in in the middle of the night, they're getting shot in the face. Larkin is not advocating going out and shooting police officers. And I think if you are a police officer and you listen to the asshole way in which he delivers a fairly decent concept, you can't hear it. And I think Steve, even trying to be open-minded, was unable to hear what he was really saying. But I don't blame Steve. I blame people in the anarchist world, like Larkin, who do the bullshit they do because they want to trigger responses. Now, let me tell you where I think Larkin is best. Larkin is best, after he's delivered his message like an asshole, to trigger a response, gains the response, and then explains his message. I have posted a link to the video that started this, and I have posted a link to a video where he follows up on it with a cop who commented on it. And what it comes down to is he's continuously asking this cop who claims, I'm one of the good cops, I am not for gun confiscations, Uh, I believe in the Constitution, I follow the Constitution, yada yada. And Larkin finally says, okay, if the government declares... That we, they are to conf, that the police officers are to confiscate the guns. Would you go along with it? And would people be within their rights to violently resist at that point? The guy does eventually, after being asked like three or four times, say, "I wouldn't do it." He he tries to cover his ass with, and if they did that, there would be a revolution. But he Larkin then pushes him four, five, six times more. Is it okay if they did wide-scale gun confiscation for people to shoot back in that situation, yes or no? And the guy continues to say, well, I already answered that. I said there'd be a revolution, but he won't say yes. And he's putting this man in touch with the internal conflict that he has. That, even though he's still being kind of the asshole that he is, and I know I can be an asshole. I'm talking about a different kind of asshole here, guys, if you're not familiar with this dude. Um, You know... He's hitting the nail on the head there. Because most cops say they wouldn't do this shit, but most cops would. I've pushed a couple officers on this that you would think would be the guys who would never do it, but when it comes right down to it, and especially the closer they are to their retirement, the more they're like, I'm not giving all of that worked up for you know this. And, and that's, that's a dangerous situation. But I don't think we should be coming at this from the standpoint of when is it okay to shoot a cop. I think we're coming at this from, when is it okay to shoot a person? Because that's what Larkin was really saying here, but again, because of the way he does it with such an asshole angle, anybody that's not already, even people within the fold, are turned off by it. And anybody not in the fold is never going to hear what's actually being said because it's done from such a extremist viewpoint. He uses that word quite a bit, too. Um. Again, if somebody's coming into my home and I don't have any reason to believe they're actually going to hurt me, I'm probably not going to shoot them. If I don't know whether they're going to hurt me or not, they're going to get shot. And there's been an awful lot of abuse by law enforcement. And I don't think that it's new. I think that when everybody has a camera, we're finally seeing it. I still think... That probably 99.8 percent of contacts between law enforcement and civilians go down without any sort of violence, and the officers conduct themselves professionally. Doesn't necessarily I agree with what they're doing. I think writing somebody a ticket because their tail lights out is road piracy, but I'm not going to shoot somebody over it. And neither is Larkin Rose. and Nor is he advocating that you would. But he, what he's trying to make the point of is there is a point. And this is something I don't think people understand. And many of the people that are driving around with thin blue line flags on their shit also have come and take it, right? they got a thin blue line and a come and take it. Well, who do you think is going to come and take them? Now, I'd like to believe that if our government ever goes that far off the rails that the majority of military and police officers will turn around, walk over to our side, about face with us, and say, I don't think so today. I want to believe that. But the, the, the words of that specific group of people, specifically active law enforcement, gives me pause to believe it. I think it might be more the case with the military. I think it is absolutely the case with prior service military. By the time a man completes his service and comes out, and at least has a year or two to reflect on it, I think you put him in that situation where they would be called up or called upon, they're standing with the citizenry. But I think there's another thing here that we really need to understand. (laughs) This is the problem with what we call democracy. There is an awful lot of people that want us disarmed. There's an awful lot of people that want property seized. There's an awful lot of people that do not respect your rights, all while chanting the word freedom with no understanding of it. And that's why I I am not hard on police officers, because I understand the situation that we're in. And I know that I won't win a single one of them over if I go around making videos about shooting police officers. There's a, there's a problem with all of this, though. If someone's coming to abduct you against your will, do you have a right to resist them? What is an arrest? And you might say, well, they're different. okay? What is an unlawful arrest, then? What is an unlawful arrest where they're taking you and you didn't do nothing wrong? Here's the thing, and this is Steve's point he was trying to make in our system, you get an opportunity to deal with that situation later. And if you were successful in violently resisting that unlawful arrest, your situation would be worse. Your situation would be worse. But for those that think I'm not being fair enough to law enforcement, if you don't listen to the original video, go listen to the follow-up video, Listen to the comments Larkin makes to this guy and listen to the way the conversation ends with this cop telling him, I hope you do go try to shoot a cop and get your ass killed and somebody videos and puts it up on YouTube so I can watch it happen. And by this time, all Larkin had done over and over and over again was ask him if they go ahead and do gun confiscation, do people have a right to resist. And that's where it ended up. And that tells you, there is a. and this is what I've tried to say, there are good men doing this job. There is a systemic problem that permeates through this job at all levels, federal, state, local, etc. Men doing the best they can, men conflicted, but in the end, doing what they're trained to do, and doing what the law says, and to be fair to them, that's what they swear to do, what the law says, as to whether it's constitutional or not. To have that come into play, you need to have happen what is beginning to happen. Things like sheriffs over a county saying, we're not enforcing that law. that Because the, the officer has sworn an oath to the Constitution. The Constitution decries a process for the determination of what's constitutional what's not. This doesn't mean that the government's right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's the position these men are in, the way they've been taught, the way they've been trained, the way they've been educated. You want to spread the concept of voluntarism. You want to spread the concept of even libertarianism. You have to do it in a way where you you can get people to listen to you. And the kind of shit Larkin Rose does shuts people right down. I know some of y'all are fans of his. I get it. I don't hate the guy, but I think his methodology is extensively flawed, and it just makes him look like a dad idiot. And the reason I think that's bad is because he's not. If he was, I wouldn't care. I just say the man's an idiot. He's actually a very intelligent guy with a very solid core moral ethic, and a absolutely shitty delivery system. Anyway, let's take another one. This is an update from Stephen Harris on the battery issues on Amazon and where we go from here.
8: Hi, this is Steve Harris for Expert Council, bringing you more information on the battery catastrophe going on with Amazon and the fake batteries that are on the market that will die quickly, and you can't tell them between the real ones and the bad ones. Remember, with what I teach to government-military, it has to pass the test of, is this going to fail and cause someone to lose their life? If they're signaling for whatever, exfiltration or uh, going into uh, lighting up a a house, a room, or whatever in close quarters battle or whatever, Is their light going to fail at the most inopportune time, or can they trust their life to that light working? So, with that said, you can no longer trust the batteries on eBay. eBay has fake batteries on them, and you can't tell the difference. People have wrote to me since the last episode, I buy my batteries at blah, blah, blah store in this place and that place, and guess what? You can't trust them because you don't know where they are getting their batteries from this is in reference to lithium cylindrical cells <coughs> excuse me so the 14500s the 18650s the RCR 123s which are also called 16340s you just can't trust them now the military people I was working with uh, I told you had 50,000 batteries that they had to run through special x-ray machines to find out what was up in them and then they um they found a white powder in them. They sent it out for analysis, and it turned out to be flour. Well, we found out why since last week what the flour was for, and I'll tell you. The fakers would make a cell that looks exactly like the name brand cell that you want to buy. You know, Panasonic, Nightcore, uh, not Nightcore, but, yeah, Panasonic, Nightcore, Olight, Surefire, So anyways, and they wouldn't put in enough of the cell such that it was the full cell. They'd put in enough so it ran only for 15, 20 minutes, and then the thing died. All they wanted was the high-dollar money for you to buy from them, and then you, you know, try to do warranty return and blah, blah, blah with the parent company, etc. And they don't care. They just want their money up front. Well, they would add something in there, lead or steel to be the weight so the batteries weighed the same as the originals the flour was put in there to prevent anything from rattling around so that's why there was flour in the battery cells problem solved the end result is just about out of 50,000 batteries just about 25 percent of them were proven to be fake In other words, an operator would have been in the field, in a foreign country, doing his job, putting in what he thought was fresh batteries, and they'd be dead. They'd be dead in 15, 20 minutes or some time frame thereabouts, but thus risking the life of the operator. And when you put them into your weapon light or into your Holotech site or your PVS-14s or your... IR, Illuminator, or whatever the other tools that they're using, you basically, when you put them in fresh, you you depend upon them working. This is also happening with name brand Surefire and Streamlight and Energizer CR123s, which are disposable. It is also happening with Energizer AA and AAA lithium disposable batteries. These are higher dollar batteries. They're over a buck each. They're being faked. So that's the situation with that. So in order, I mean, if you're buying batteries for the kids, the rechargeable batteries, and it's for their toys or, you know, their favorite flashlight or you're using it around the house, it's something non-critical, you want to take a risk on a little better price on eBay but not a dramatically better price, go ahead and buy the eBay um, batteries. And stick stick to Nightcore, Fenix, F-E-N-I-X, and Olight. However, if you are buying a battery that your life depends on, like the battery that you have in your flashlight that is you are going to use when your car is broken down on the side of the road and you need to illuminate so you can get out or you can fix something or whatever the situation is, a bug out situation or a broken car situation, when it's one of those batteries... I'm telling you right now, as of May 9th, 2019, until we can get a better, uh, solid solution, you can only buy the batteries you're going to trust your life safe and health to, to buying them directly from the manufacturer. Now, you have to be careful, because there is even, for the Fenix Corporation, there's even a website that looks like the corporate website that's not the corporate website. So for Fenix batteries and flashlights, you want to go to Fenix Lighting, F-E-N-I-X-L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G dot com. No space, no hyphen, no nothing. You do not want to go to Fenix dash store dot whatever. No, no, no. Lighting dot com. The other place you can trust is All Light World. So, DuPont actually owns Olight.com. The Olight Corporation that does a lot of batteries and flashlights for law enforcement is OlightWorld.com, O-L-I-G-H-T-W-O-R-L-D.com. The other place you can completely trust, and it's actually one of the name brands that I use, I trust, and the people I teach who trust things like this the most is Nightcore. N-I-T-E-C-O-R-E dot com. Now, Nightcore is a Chinese company. They are based in China. However, if you are buying from the Nightcore.com dot com store, you are buying directly from the manufacturer from a location near Austin, Texas that will ship them directly out to you. It is a Nightcore owned facility that is in Texas, in the United States, and they will ship directly to you. If you're elsewhere in the world, um, if you're going to have to find how to get them officially from the corporation. Email them and ask them. Go to nightcore.com and say, where can I buy your batteries here in New Zealand or Australia or Germany or Mali or wherever you are. But the thing is, this is a big thing because you just can't look inside of a battery like you can a glass of water and go, oh, it's dirty. Oh, there's floaties in there. You just can't do it. Um, I have a way coming up. I'm going to be showing you how to try to do it with a current meter. But for now, I had to give you an update and a report on this about what you can trust, your life, health, safety, and medical care to and that's what I just told you. If it's, you know, any lesser applicant right tool, right application. So if it's a non-critical application, you want to go to 18650 Battery Store or uh, whoever is your favorite place on the web, go ahead. Because they're not on sale on Amazon. Uh There's fakers on Amazon, and they go up and come down every day. There's fakers all over eBay now. And... Even it says Surefire on it, you can't believe it's really a real Surefire CR123 that came from the factory. Not unless you buy it from the factory. Sorry for the disappointing news. Want to know more about Stephen Harris and all my free stuff I've done with Jack? It's Stephen1234.com. You want all of my paved videos and my stuff I've made on battery banks... And all the other great Harris stuff—it's all in one place for as low as $9.97 a month. No commitment, no contract, no nothing. At Harris, that's H-A-R-R-I-S one two three four dot com. Thanks, guys. Bye.
0: The next one I got one here from Andrew. These were actually suggestions for show topics, but I think this one uh, I can really do in in just a short segment of ten minutes or less. So he actually asked three things. He said, "How how to have your hobbies pay for themselves?" I think it was you and your friend David who said, uh, or your friend David who said all his hobbies have to pay for themselves. Uh, next up, tech on the homestead series, and then the last one. I'm going to put this out there because I get this every once in a while. Are you still involved with permit Ethos? I tried to access the website and it's no longer working. Uh, let's start with that one real quick. Myself. And all the other partners except Josiah Wallingford sold our interest in the business to Josiah almost three years ago. Uh, for a while, I had still had some interaction. I do not hear from Josiah. I do not know what's going on with Josiah. I have no input, no control, no anything at this point uh, over the Perma Ethos project or what it's become, which I understood to be a new website, new branding called Thrive Through. Um, I just don't have any control, and I don't get a, a response from Josiah any more than anybody else does. So I don't know what's going on there, and there's nothing I can do about it. Take on the homestead, we'll put that in the maybe category and take a look at maybe how we could do some of that. Let's talk about having your hobbies pay for themselves. Um, I can't speak to hobbies that I don't have any experience with exactly how you would do this. But I'm going to try to come at this from a standpoint of if I'm doing something I consider a hobby... I don't want to turn it into a second job. If I want to turn it into a business, that's fine, but I'm not going to do that with every hobby I have because then I'm not going to have any hobbies. I'm going to have a whole bunch of businesses, and when you have a whole bunch of businesses, you have um, a situation where none of them do very well, especially when you're a solopreneur, right? When you are an individual entrepreneur, uh, multiple businesses is not the way to go. Uh, in fact, I have learned from things like Perma Ethos that unless you have built a business to the point where that business can run itself with very little of your input, don't start another business. Don't start another business, I'll tell you that right now. So how do we do this? So let me look at it from a standpoint of my fish tanks because this is something that I can actually speak with, you know, uh, understanding on. So I have four, six, eight, nine, ten, about 12 tanks in my office alone, a couple other ones here and there. And so I try to make a little bit of money with my tanks, but I don't really worry about it. You know, I'm, not, I'm not as big as David is on it, running spreadsheets on everything. But let's say that I just decided flat out, oh, I want to make sure that this isn't costing me nothing to do this. Well, what I would need to do then is, is add up the cost of my fertility uh, agents that I use and any kind of algae control uh, chemical I use all my fish food, and then figure out, here's how many heaters I'm running, here's how many pumps I'm running. You throw the kilowatt meter on everything and figure out, what does it cost? Because you want your hobby to pay for itself, you need to figure out what it costs. And I think the most important reason to do this is to then sit down and have a conversation with yourself and ask yourself two things. Self, is this expensive enough in return that what it gives for me that I even have to do this? Because I'm not going to try to make every single thing that I do recreationally pay for itself, because some of it isn't going to. So, is it expensive enough? You know, if it's if it's a hundred dollars a year, I'm probably even, I, I'm done. I don't care. I'll go. I can make a hundred bucks some other way, easy enough. If let's say it's a thousand bucks a year total cost of this hobby, and then you throw things like in a fish hobby with buying new fish and plants and stuff, maybe fifteen hundred bucks. Well that's enough to get my attention and if I can get that 1500 bucks back while I'm doing things I mostly would do anyway, then it might make sense to get that 1500 bucks back. So let's just say it's 1200 bucks to make it a nice round number. Well now I know I need to make either 1200 bucks in one shot or I need to do something like make you know 600 bucks twice a year. Or I need to make $100 a month. I've broken it down so that I can kind of gnaw and chew on it. And then I'm going to have to ask myself, where does the money go? And and is there different ways that that money disappears? So when I look at fish, there's a couple different ways that money disappears. There's, there's the electricity cost. Okay, that's not coming back. There's no way that, you know, I'm not going to turn my my fish filter into a, a, a spontaneous uh, uh, generator that generates more energy and takes to run it and get the energy back. That's not happening. And I don't sell electricity, so that, that, that's gone. i got to get it somewhere else. Then there's another, the basic infrastructure. So if I'm going to set up a new tank, i got the expense of the tank, the filter, the pump, et cetera, and, and, and I'm not getting that money back. Gravel, etc. Whatever it is, I'm not that. That money is gone. That's infrastructure money, and I'm not in that business. If I get to a point where I decide I don't really like this tank anymore, or I don't really. I switch over to a different type of filtration system. My old stuff still works. I could sell all that shit and recover some of the cost, but that's not going to be something that I can count on giving me my money back. So that. So what we're doing now is we're analyzing the hobby. Does the hobby provide a means by which I can make money. So then the next thing I would think of is, well, uh, what else do I put in these tanks? And the answer is plants. And the plants are one of the places that I can get money back. Every few weeks, I have to prune out plants. I mean, if you get them to grow right, you end up pruning plants. Cuttings propagate so I can sell plants. If I really want to get my 1200 bucks back, all I need to do is sell $100 worth of plants a month. If I wanted to get my money back out of my aquarium hobby, uh, the things that I produce in surplus that sell relatively easy are about five or six varieties of plants and a shrimp called a cherry shrimp. There's other things you can do. You can breed guppies and high-end guppies and stuff like that. You don't have to sell a million guppies. right? If you're selling a guppy that sells for $5 a guppy, you sell 20 guppies a month, you broke broken even. Especially if you can do it in a way that you were going to do it anyway. So my approach would be, you know, I'd need to sell. And i, I probably say that I probably have about $2,000 a year in what I do with, with my aquarium hobby. I, I'm a little bit over the tank with what they call uh, MTS or multiple tank syndrome. I like it. It's, it's one of my few things that I really do just for me. You know, when I, when I started getting bigger into it again, I was like, you have so much to do already. And Nick Ferguson was here with me and her when she said that. He said, no, 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 he doesn't have to do that. He gets to do that. So, I mean, this is a pure recreation thing for me. If I wanted to get that back, though, that's what I would do. I would, you know, figure out, I like, could sell about $200 a month worth of plants and shrimp, and then my hobby pays for itself. I also have to say, well, how much time is that going to take? And, and I feel it's right that I compensate myself for the time beyond what the hobby would require. This is the process of thinking through this. So, if I'm going to get in my tank this weekend, and I really need to because it's really overgrown. And there's some water wisteria in there that needs to be pruned back. Uh, there's some pups coming off an anima- Amazon sword that I don't really need. Uh, there's, there's some valsinaria that can come out of there. There's a certain amount of plants that can come out of there. Now, I'm either going to take them and put them in another tank, or I'm going to plant them in a pond if they can get a pond. Or I'm going to just throw them in a the compost heap. Right. So the work of getting them out of the tank is going to happen. But if I'm selling them, I've got to put a listing up on Craigslist or eBay or something like that. Now when they come out of the tank, they have to be maybe put into uh, a stock tank out in the garage so they don't die on me uh, to wait until an order comes in. I've got to package them up, and I've got to get them off to the store and sell them. So there's going to be a certain amount of hours. Now, if I'm only trying to sell $200 worth of plants a month, and let's say that my my average order is about 20 bucks, and I could set it up so it's almost impossible for it to be less than 20 bucks, including by inflating my shipping on smaller orders to compensate. And and, and we're saying that my shipping's covered. So if, you know, if if the order's 18 bucks, and I'm adding a little bit to shipping, and I'm I'm paying you know. Eight bucks to ship it, then that person is paying me twenty six dollars including shipping, and and we're a wash at that. And I've got my, or I would be charging them thirty bucks, right? Whatever, uh, twenty eight bucks. I, I am I am at a wash on the shipping. There was no cost to me in shipping. The customer paid for it. I inflated a little bit because the order was under twenty dollars or whatever it is. I have no underlying cost in the product. Because I'm not trying to turn it into a business. I don't need to have 30 plants in inventory at all times. I'm not buying from a third party. I'm not paying people to do any work. My only cost is my time in addition to my hobby, which I claim to like to do, and then the shipping expense. So at that, you know, if I can sell 10, 10 orders a month, then I'm good. And if I wanted to do that and keep it a hobby, what I would probably do... Is yes, these plants can sit in a, in a stupid stock tank, you know, with with enough light coming through my skylight in my garage and survive, and be better quality, by the way, than anything that you can buy from most of the fish stores because they were grown underwater instead of out of water, which is how most aquarium plants are grown for high propagation. I would market that, and what I would probably do is build my inventory up through the month, list my products wherever I list them, eBay, Craigslist, whatever, try to sell enough in a week to can't handle the whole month, or maybe sell enough in that one or two weeks to handle the next three months, ship it all out, and quit. I mean, that, the, the way I would do it, I would try to do a sale once a quarter. So I'd just take all these cuttings and stuff, pop them in little net pots or whatever, throw, and, and I would run that side of the business through the summer and the fall and the spring and in the in the winter just throw a freaking heater you got to work that into your numbers out there and, and 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 bam and if four times a year that I'd actually do the extra work that way it's all packaging dum 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 done i'm out and if i could if i could finagle that to where i could do it in two shipments a year that's what i would do the least amount of work to get back to par and then go back to enjoying it. If in that, you discover that you really like this, the market's bigger than you thought it was, but just be careful, because there's a there's a big delta between working really, really hard for not much more and making enough on a business like this to actually have it be a business. And you can end up go spending a lot of money to ramp up and never come back to par. But most hobbies... Since you're spending money on it, there's some way, whether it's YouTube videos videos that you monetize, whatever it is, right, there's there's consulting or setting stuff up for other people or whatever, there's something you can do to make it pay for itself. Most, not all. But that's the approach that I'm coming out with that, Andrew. Thanks for asking the question. I do think it's a good one. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast and another week. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Remember... Uh, you can always send me feedback to be on the air by sending it to Jack at com. And you can always support the work that we do here uh, in a couple different ways. And, and one of the really uh, easiest ways to do that is become a member of the Member Support Brigade. And MSB is great, man. You guys, here's the thing. You join the site and become a member. You get a login. You log into your site, that side of the site, and there's some extra content and stuff like there. But, but really, the big thing is the, the benefits page. You go to the benefits page, and there's about 70 different companies that offer discounts. And they're not piddly little discounts. I mean, we just brought on Frontier Tactical with the Warlock system for AR-15 with a 20% discount. That's massive. I mean, you're talking you know, a product where if, you, if you're going into setting up a Warlock conversion system for your AR... Uh, you could be into it easily, five hundred bucks. Well, twenty percent of that, right? That's a hundred bucks on a fifty-dollar membership, in that one thing. So it pays for itself. So consider becoming a member if you're not already one. Next up, the other way that you can help support us is real, real easy, is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I look at it this way: there's no reason not to do this. You're going to shop online. You like the show? Go to t s p a z tspaz.com. When you do that, you can see all the items I've ever reviewed on Amazon, or you can just get over and see the deals the there or whatever. Whatever happens after that, you're going to help support us no matter what you buy. Um, And you can also take a look at our our particular uh, products of the day, our items of the day that we review. And today I've got one for you. I haven't brought this around in a while, but this is a little product, and either you need it or you don't. Um, But I say if you have igloo coolers, especially the big white ones, like the 100-gallon ones, this is a product you just need to go ahead and buy. If you don't need it today, eventually you will. And when you do, let's fix it right. So I'm going to tell you, some of you right now are going to think that I'm in your garage or in your basement looking at your cooler. This is what I know about a lot of you. You have an igloo cooler, and one or both of the clasps are broken on it. And or one or more of the hinges on the back of it are broken. And you probably already went somewhere like Cabela's or Bass Pro or Walmart and bought replacements for it and put them on there, and within a year or two, the plastic got brittle and they broke too, right? Now, look, plastic isn't evil, and plastic is not a poor material for constructing certain things. The uh, the coolers themselves are made of plastic, and they last for decades i've never seen an igloo cooler just stop being a cooler like just fall apart except for the hinges and the hasps why plastic is not a good material to build shit with that bends and flexes long-term repetitively over and over again because sooner or later it will get brittle and it will break so what i have for you are a set of latches and a set of hinges and the latches are a hybrid. They're stainless steel where the hinge is, and then the actual locking mechanism is the reinforced plastic, which makes sense. The part that moves is made out of stainless steel. It ain't going to break. And then the, uh, the hinges are just 100% stainless steel. This is something, if you can work a screwdriver, you can do this with your cooler. You take the screws out, you put the new screws that come with it in, and put the new stuff on it, and you're done. Now, I will tell you, this is something to look at my review if you're going to buy these for your cooler because somebody uh, looked at all of the people that were complaining about the hinges, not not the hinges, the last not fitting right, and uh, said, I I know what they're doing. They're putting them on wrong, and there's a way to put them on right, and there's a way to put them on wrong. And I got pictures of both, the right and the wrong way. And when you look at it, you're like, okay, that makes sense. You can understand the special children that would have never figured it out. But it'll it'll save you the time of trying to figure it out. Uh, but honestly, if you own Igloo coolers, I would if it was me, I would go ahead and just replace them. I have like three of these things. And w- the last time one broke, uh, I found these. Because I was like, there has to be something better than this shit. I found these. I ordered them. I put it on my, my, my cooler that was broken. I looked at the other two coolers and said... You know, it's not going to be long, is it? And I went ahead and ordered them for the other two coolers. And I had a for a workshop. I had David bring his big cooler over, so I had four of them sitting here. I went ahead and ordered a set, and when I gave it back to him, I gave it back to him converted. Uh, I, it, once you do it, you'll be like that was that was not a ton of money, and uh, it was money well spent. See, I think that we need to think more like our grandparents. They didn't they didn't just when something broke, fix it instead of throwing it away and get a new one. If they could, they made it better than it was before it broke. This is a really easy way to do that. Check it out. The Igloo Hybrid Stainless and Plastic Latch and Igloo Stainless Steel Hinges. Fix that dad gun cooler once and for all because there's nothing else really going to go wrong with it unless you drop it off a building or off the back of a truck or something. Oh, real quick before I give you the song of the day. Hey, you know how to clean that skanky cooler that you forgot about all the skanky stuff in it and it smells and it's all nasty and you scrubbed it and scrubbed it and scrubbed it and you just don't want to come clean? Assuming you own a pickup truck, and I don't know how many of you people in this audience don't own at least one pickup truck in your family, take that cooler, stick it in the back of your pickup truck. Fill it halfway up with water, put about a cup of bleach in it, and then lock the lid down with your new fancy-schmancy hasps. Drive that truck around for a week. When you dump that cooler out, it'll look like the day you bought it. It's the easiest way in the world to clean a cooler. You heard it here at the com. With that... Let's go ahead and talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is by Sly and the Family Stone, Um, and it's called Everyday People. Most of you know the song, just from me saying that. It's not a very long song, about two minutes and 20-odd seconds. And those of you that are I don't know if I know that song, as soon as you hear the opening riff, you're like, oh, I know that song. And when you hear the chorus, you're like, yeah, that's that song. Well, what this song is, it's about how we are all basically the same. No matter what our color is, where we live, in the end, we are all the same. This was from the 70s, and it's a message that some people have still yet to hear. But I think way more people understand it and live this way today than any other time in history, despite what the TV tells us. But we are also continuing our you know, week of songs based on fairy tales. In this case, it's kind of more of, I guess, a nursery rhyme the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, right? Remember that? That's right up in the front end of this song, and that's kind of the all-encompassing, hey, this is the everyday people, the people that just do the normal jobs that are necessary for life to go on. We're all way more alike than we're not, and it talks about you know, one group being mad at the other, being mad at the other, being mad at the other, and how it just doesn't work. Well, that's a great way to end the week. I do think that in the end... All of us are far more alike than we are different. And if we'd stop paying attention to what the TV tells us for a while, maybe we'd see that. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough or even if they don't.